Amen. Thank you, Hannah. We are, um, we're in a somber moment, aren't we? You feel that, not just the violin. Um, Maybe it's the subject matter, speaking on marriage and divorce. Maybe it's all kinds of things, but um, I think uh, sometimes there is a, a, a heaviness, a sobriety to worship, and it's good to bring that kind of worship as well. God's word says to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Um, so this morning, as we, as we touch on some things that have caused many people to weep, um, it's okay for us to go down there and stay for a while and uh, soberly look at some of the things that cause weeping. And, you know, there, the subjects that, that grieve hearts are, are relatives to each other, and I think it might be appropriate for me to mention this morning that uh, I've heard a couple of different people have come to me with news of Rick Warren's uh, son uh, took his life this morning. And uh, uh, very... Very devastating. So, can't help but uh, take that in and they say that in the inner city people bleed and in the suburbs they hemorrhage. And uh, as pastors, we, we sometimes see some of the hemorrhaging. If there's trust, people are invited in. But uh, on a week-by-week basis, we know that all across our, our congregation, in our neighborhoods where we live, um, in our city, there's so much that goes unchecked and un, unaddressed and uncared for. So... Let me begin with prayer. Father God, we just thank you for who you are, what the cross means. We have just shared in a in a meal that reminds us of the oneness of your people and the oneness with Jesus. And we're going to be talking about the broken oneness of marriages that come in divorce and the broken oneness of families that lose loved ones to death. And um, Lord, you're a, a God who is uh, familiar with suffering. And so, God, we come to you with our our brokenness, our hurt. And uh, there's not one of us in this room, not one of us in this room that is not broken, that is not hurting, that is not touched by the wounds of humanity and divorce and all kinds of things. And, Father, we just come to you and we pray that as we sit under your word, Lord, that it might be both the double-edged sword, the, the, the one edge that, that shows the incredible 
supremacy of your ways, the undivided and indissoluble relationship of marriage, the permanence thereof, but also, God, the other edge that is so very much um, the edge that cuts away sin and heals and brings, brings that which is needed to the hurting. So we, Lord, we acknowledge our need before you today, and we just pray you'd bless this uh, time in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. So as we continue in our Gospel of Mark study, um, Mark, as we have been noticing, is very careful to tell us where, he, where they are. And as we look in Mark chapter 10, we notice that in verse 1, Mark clarifies that he's uh, in Judea across the Jordan. And as soon as we hear those words, we should, it should make us think of someone that's very important to Jesus. We, think it, we should think of John the Baptist, shouldn't we? Because that's where John the Baptist lived, that's where John the Baptist ministered and preached, and that's where he baptized. And of course, Mark has already gone into great detail in chapter 6 to describe how John left this earth. He left this earth without his head. He was arrested and then later beheaded because he spoke out against King Herod and the illegal and unrighteous divorce of his wife and his remarriage with Herodias who was actually Herod's brother Philip's wife and because of speaking out on that John the Baptist ultimately was beheaded and so divorce and remarriage was a very hot topic at that time and in this area and so the 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 Pharisees who by what we read in chapter 3, had already made alliances with the Herodians, which were the followers of Herod, it would seem like this was a prime time, place, and topic for them to trap Jesus and to get him to say something that would get him beheaded and therefore get rid of this annoyance and this nuisance to the Jewish leaders and their system. And so the Jews, the, the Pharisees, come to Jesus and they say to him, they asked him a question about divorce, which was a perfect trap as they saw it. And so let's take a look at this passage of Scripture, Mark chapter 10, and let's stand together as we look at, look at it. Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 1, it says, Jesus then left that place, and he went into the region of Judea across the Jordan, and again crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he asked. He replied. And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And then when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. 
And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. May God bless us as well in his word today. You may be seated. Before we look at this scripture, I would like to just make a, a couple of personal comments. And the first comment is that it's, it's actually important that we understand that we're going through the Gospel of Mark, and we can see at times like this the value of series in books of the Bible like we're doing in the series on Mark, because it forces us to address some of the subjects that we would not otherwise want to address. I would be very slow to... Uh, stand up here and address the subject of divorce because of the very personal and, and hurtful nature of it. And uh, yet I can declare to you today that without any conscience at all of, against me, I am preaching today on Mark chapter 10 because it follows Mark chapter 9. <laughs> and that's pretty plain, isn't it? But a second reason I, or thing I want to say is that it is important for us to see that the subject of marriage and divorce... Uh, is important for us because marriages are under attack and marriage is under attack. In fact, we are living in a culture and in a time when more is expected of marriage than in the past. Because of rampant individualism and the seduction of the media, we are being conditioned today to want more from marriage than it ever was able to deliver. Beyond financial stability and companionship and family life, there is added to the expectations unconditional love, emotional support, personal fulfillment, recreational fun, constant romance, great sex. And I'm not suggesting that those should not be byproducts of a good marriage. They should be. The problem is that instead of working on yourself for those things and on your marriage... There are so many voices today that tell us that if you're not getting these things in sufficient measure, you deserve to get them, and there's someone else out there that can give them to you. That's what we're told. One author says it this way, Seduction, fornication, and adultery are the erotic engines at the core of the entertainment and advertising industries. They encourage us to be satisfied with nothing but the best and to upgrade once the old no longer works for us. Statistics Canada tells us that 43.1% of marriages will end in divorce. In the first year of marriage in Canada, less than one, there's less than one divorce for every 1,000 marriages. By the fourth year of marriage, that number goes up to 255 and then it's interesting that it declines every year. The rate of divorce declines after the fourth year in Canada. Uh, Pat and I are celebrating next month our 30th wedding anniversary. And uh, that's clapping for her more than me, right? And uh, yet in Canada, 37.7% of marriages will not make it that far. 37.7% percent of marriages will not make it that far. Our first year of marriage was our hardest year by far. I'm not sure why, but I, I, we tell premarital couples we're counseling always that, that our first year was our hardest year. 
I was so glad in our first house that we lived in, in Eagle River near Dryden, Ontario, that we had at least two bedrooms because the other one got some use. And even though we were very aware of the scripture passage that says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, uh, the bedroom got use, and many times at past midnight, there would be pitter-patter steps one to the, from the one bedroom to the other to try and resolve the matter before the, well, the sun was already down, but before we went to sleep anyway. Marriage is not easy, friends. Marriage is not easy. I'll be referring to a book by John Piper. I've got one here. On, uh, he, he wrote a book called uh, This Momentary Marriage, and he tried to write the book at the 20th anniversary of his wedding. He tried to write it at the 30th, and finally by the 40th wedding anniversary, he said, I'm just going to write this thing because we're never going to get it right. You see, the point is that every marriage struggles. There's not a perfect marriage. And so we come to this as wounded people, broken. I'm so glad we still have two bedrooms at least in the house, but now we don't need them for the same reasons we use them for things like snoring and... Uh, Restless leg syndrome or something else like that. I don't know. <laughs> Too much information, right? <laughs> you might be surprised to know that since 2008, Statistics Canada stopped tracking and recording marriage and divorce rates. Since 2008. You can't find them anymore. And that's because, one was because of budget cuts. The other reason they give is because the nature of marriage relationship has changed. There are many more common law relationships now. And so why keep tracking this thing? Because demographically, it's just changing so much. In 2008, there were over 70,000 divorces in Canada. I don't have a Canadian statistic, but the Barna Group did a study in the United States, and they found out that the divorce rate among evangelical professing Christians is just one percentile lower than the general population. Okay, so this isn't something that's sort of out there, friends. This is something that we as a Christian family look, need to look at and address, because it's here. We've seen the enemy, and it is us, you see. That's the idea. So when we think about divorce, what is the scripture that, of course, naturally comes to mind? Everybody thinks about Malachi chapter 2.16, whether they can quote it or not. It's, I hate divorce, God says. Everybody thinks about that verse. I hate divorce. That's amazing. Here's the one thing that God and all divorcees agree on. Right? They all hate it. Wouldn't you say that's a great... In fact, anybody that has ever had anything to do with divorce agrees with God in this matter. They hate divorce. And the reason that we hate divorce is because of what it does to people. Probably everybody in this room has seen the effects, whether close up or far away, of what divorce does to people. That's why God, that's one of the reasons why God hates divorce. God hates divorce because of what it does to people. See, how can you, how can hate and love not be themes that are always hand in hand? They have to be hand in hand. The reason is because, because God loves us. He has to hate what will come against us. When I was in seminary, I had a professor who said that in prison ministry, hate, the worst kind of hate, is love turned angry. Hate and love are very close alliances. How can God not hate the very thing that is hindering his people that he loves? Hate and love. 
And so God, when he speaks in the Bible, when God speaks about the severity and the permanence of marriage and the marriage union, he is not doing so because he wants to restrict our joy, but because he wants to maximize our joy. He's not trying to limit life. He's trying to make life more liberating for us. But see, in our narrow and short-sighted vision, we don't see why God says what he says. Now, there's something else I want to say about Malachi 2.16 before we get into the Mark text. And I want to tell you what it does not say. Malachi 2.16 says that God hates divorce. It does not say that he hates divorcees. Some of you need to hear that today. God hates sin. He does not hate sinners. Good thing for all of us. It's because God loves sinners like we all are that he hates our sin. Friends, we need to do way more in the church. We need to do way more in the church at being a place of healing and safety for those who are wounded by marriage breakups and divorce. It means being proactive and it means being reactive. Guardrails at the top of a cliff are good. Guardrails at the top of the cliff are better than the ambulance service at the bottom of the cliff. But we should not ignore the wounded at the bottom. Some are there perhaps because they've been careless and foolish, granted. Some are there because they're more victims than others are victims. But just as an ambulance service does not give care based on their assessment of guilt, so we should not show love and care for the divorce based on our assessment of their guilt. And so I want you to know that I'm very aware and very conscious of who I'm preaching to this morning. Let's take a look at Mark chapter 10. You'll notice in the insert in your bulletin, the green piece of paper, that there is a comparative chart. And on the one side, the column, it says, Pharisees were directed or motivated by one thing, and Jesus was trying to redirect them toward another. Like, first of all, we see that the Pharisees were strongly directed by the, what was lawful or legal, whereas Jesus was more concerned about what was loving. The question that they come to Jesus with exposes their hearts. Notice it says, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This is a what can I get away with question. Right off the bat, we can see it. We can smell it a mile away. This is a what can I get away with question. This is a what are the bare essentials, the minimum requirements kind of question. Too many people ask the question, is it legal, instead of asking, is it right? You see, just because I can do something does not mean that I should do it. We can do things with our legal rights and ignore God's ideal. That's what the, the Pharisees were caught up in. And they approached it this way because they were the leading advocates of the any-cause, easy-divorce system in New Testament times. In biblical times, divorce was an action taken by a man to dismiss his wife. Wives had very little recourse in a court of law. A man was only required to give her a sum of money in Hebrew called a ketubah, and that was not much to live on for her. And so in the Greco-Roman world, there was uh, this wide door open to uh, a justification for divorce on either side. 
what we would maybe call no-fault divorce, which is kind of an oxymoron, of course. I think somebody's got to be at fault or it would work out. And so the Pharisees were preoccupied with what was lawful, what was legal. And according to their interpretation, of course. But Jesus sums up the law. They were looking at what was lawful. Jesus sums up the law with the word love. Matthew chapter 22, 37, that all of the law is summed up with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. So in other words, God, Jesus was trying to focus the Pharisees on what was loving, maximizing your love for God, and giving the kind of love for everyone else, including your spouse, that you have for yourself already. Secondly, the Pharisees were directed by a concession about divorce, whereas Jesus tried to direct them to the command that God made. In verse 4, the Pharisees are clearly co quoting Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. What does it say? It says, If a man marries a woman who has becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her away, from his house and it goes on it's quite a long statement in Deuteronomy 24 1 but in essence it's it's going on and saying that if, if she goes on to marry somebody else she can't just get divorced and come back if she wants to marry the first man again but in the midst of it there's this phrase actually it's a Hebrew one Hebrew word used the NIV translates it something indecent about her it's the idea of a cause of immorality, one Hebrew word. Literally, it's kind of translated like a thing of nakedness. And because of the translation and the Hebrew word that was used, most people at the time took this to mean adultery. But there were two rabbinical schools of thought, two rabbis before the time of Jesus that had developed into two schools of thought. And the stricter school called Shammai held that this was the only basis for divorce, adultery. The only justifiable cause for divorce was marital unfaithfulness. The other school of Hillel was more liberal, and they focused on the choice of words that Moses used. In other words, they thought, well, if he wanted it to, the divorce to be only justifiable because of adultery, why didn't he just use the word adultery or immorality instead of this other word that had to do with the cause of immorality, this this thing of nakedness. And so they were very liberal, in fact, so liberal in their interpretation that any shameful or indecent thing was excuse enough for a man to dismiss his wife. Taking down her hair in public, talking to other men, speaking badly about her mother-in-law, and the list goes on of documented examples. And so, in, interestingly enough, that in, in the time of Jesus, in most issues such as the Sabbath, Jesus actually leaned toward the school of Hillel, the more liberal school. But in this matter of marriage, he seems to align more with the school of Shammai, which is a more rigid view of the permanence of marriage. So the Pharisees then are focused on a concession made by Deuteronomy 24.1 instead of the command that goes back to Genesis chapter 2 of what God's original plan was. Thirdly, you notice that there's a contract mentality that the Pharisees had as opposed to the covenant mentality that is held up in Scripture. And this is coming out in things like they talked about a written certificate of divorce, a marital pink slip, as it were. 
that a man could, could annul his marriage with. But Jesus instead points to the, the permanence of marriage, going back to Genesis chapter 2. He talks about this deeply founded mystical union that, that a man and a woman have that cannot be fully described and how that represents the union of God with his people, Jesus Christ and the church. What God has joined together cannot be undone by the act of human will or some kind of a written certificate. A contract and a covenant are two different things. In a contract, two parties get together and they say, this is your side of the bargain and this is my side of the bargain. And if you don't hold up your side of the bargain, I don't have to hold up my side of the bargain. That's a contract. But a covenant is not that way. A covenant says that whatever you do about your side, I am still obligated to hold up my end of the covenant. That's why the marriage vows, which really come out of some Hebrew scriptures, the marriage vows say, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness, and I can't even remember them right now, but it's all about the covenant. It's not about for better or for worse. If yours is better, mine will be better. If yours is worse, mine's going to be worse. That's why when we gathered around the Lord's table and Kevin led us, the scripture when Jesus inaugurated the Last Supper, he lifted up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. There's a new relationship with God. It's not a contract. I thank God that I do not have a contract with Jesus Christ because I fail him regularly. And if he was able to walk away, I'd be, I'd be done. And you see, that's the point of marriage. It's Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is talking about the mystery of marriage and he's saying, he's talking about Christ and the church. That's the point, friends, is that every human marriage, every marriage is to be a reflection of the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his people, the covenant love, the love that is based on the very faithfulness of the character of God. That's what our marriages are based on. Fourthly, we see that Jesus is pointing out that the Pharisees are approaching divorce the way they do because of their hard hearts. Verse 5, Matthew 13, 15 quotes Isaiah the prophet who said that their hearts had become calloused. Many times scripture says, do not harden your hearts. Jesus is always concerned about our hearts, isn't he? And that's because a sinful heart responds to sin by getting harder. That's what sinful hearts do, is that when they're sinned against, they crust over. They get harder so they can be protected. They don't get hurt again and again. That's why I believe that one of the, the most important things that a, a pre-married couple going into marriage should have in their battery of resources should be a robust theology of sin about their own sin. Sin, a theology of the sin that has not just been textbook studied because of Scripture, but it has been worked out in the anvil of experience because they know their own wicked hearts. They know their selfishness. They know what they're like. They know what they bring to marriage. And they have to have a soft heart because a blind heart is blind to their own sin. A soft heart is open to being self-aware, teachable, humble. I don't think marriages survive without a good theology of sin. The problem with so much 
marital strife in the world today is that by the time a married couple goes to a pastor or a counselor or a therapist, their hearts are already so hard that they're not really able to be salvaged. I remember in another church, former church that I pastored, a couple that that was going through incredible marital strife, four children, and they came to me and and they came to the whole board. I involved the whole board of the church in trying to save this marriage. I remember the women would go off with the woman and the men would go off with the men. We'd come together. We'd be praying over them. We'd be doing everything we could, helping the children. In the end, they they separated. They divorced. And they blamed the board. (laughs) At least partially. Hard hearts are hard to direct. Jesus says this is because of the hardness of your heart. A broken and contrite heart God never despises. That's what he's looking for in all of us. Then there's the rights and the responsibilities. The Pharisees are concerned about all their rights because of what God permitted according to their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. And a parallel passage to this in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, in verses 10 to 12 of Mark 10, we see that there's no exception clause, but in Mark or Matthew 19, we see that there's an exception clause, except for marital unfaithfulness, Jesus says. Same thing is found in Matthew 5.32, except for marital unfaithfulness. And we can't begin to address all the scriptures that are talking about divorce. That's not my point this morning. I raised this Matthew 19 section only to, 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 to raise the matter that that in the very same incident that this is talking about, Matthew's gospel does state, except for marital unfaithfulness, which seems to be that some people have hold as a right if their spouse is unfaithful. You have the right to divorce. But in any passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 7 or others in the Old Testament, Exodus 21, there's passages that talk about maybe allowable divorce. I'm not going to go into that right now, but the point is that God never recommends it. The, the ideal is always for forgiveness and reconciliation. The reflection of covenant love says that, yes, you, you were unfaithful, but I can forgive because Christ has forgiven me of so much. The waters of divorce are so messy and muddy and murky and we'll never know the whole story whenever somebody comes to us. You can have a soft heart in your, and, and do all your responsibilities well and your spouse will still divorce you. You can't. There's no guarantees. That's why I don't believe that a church should have a policy on this, that every, every individual matter needs to be concerned with it individually because Pharisees in us all will bend the rules of some church to fit our own circumstances or will escape and find somewhere else where we can fit in. It doesn't help people heal. And so, too often, scriptures on divorce are used by one group as a hammer to beat up the wounded or as another group as loopholes to look for ways out. The responsibilities that Jesus points to in Mark chapter 10 are rooted in the origin of created intent in marriage. It goes back to Genesis chapter 2. A man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. The leaving is an essential responsibility. There are many marriages that go to divorce because somebody in that marriage didn't know how to leave the former family. That mom and dad are still speaking into that way too much. 
Another responsibility is to cleave. That, that word in Hebrew actually is a preposition along with the word to glue or stick to and bond with something. It is such a tight word. If I was to demonstrate it, I'd have to have one of you come up here and I would squeeze you till, till your eyes popped out. Cleaving is a strong word. The reason it's so strong is because it is the responsibility of the married partners to do so. Cleaving does not simply mean that you make it work by living under the same roof and keeping all your pain inside. Cleaving means you, you press into the very person that you run a, want, want to run away from. Cleaving means you get tighter when problems get worse. Cleaving means that you make it work. Cleaving means that you take the courage to press into the very thing that you want to run away from. That's cleaving. This is why divorce is so contrary to God's ways because the new family that's formed by a marriage union is meant to be so tight that no other enemy can get between it. No other enemy can penetrate. But you see, in divorce, the one that you are cleaving becomes the enemy. That's why it's so contrary to God's ways. The one that you're cleaving to becomes the enemy. It's like the rabbit who escapes the trap by gnawing one of his legs off. Yes, you can be free, but at what expense? That's what divorce does. You can have your freedom, but at what expense? Marriage partners are like two plants that have grown for so long together in the same pot that their roots are intertwined down deep in the soil and to rip one of them out would cause injury to both of them as well as the entire plants above the ground to try and separate these. And if one does, does separate them, both roots are forever shaped by the other root system. That's marriage. That's what divorce does. You are forever shaped by that other root system. What God has joined together should never be torn apart. Sixthly, in our list, you'll notice that the Pharisees are, are focused on their assumed liberties from divorce, and Jesus points them to the consequences of divorce. He holds up the other reality. In Mark chapter 10, you'll notice that verse 10 says that the disciples have another private time with Jesus, where Jesus goes into a deeper discussion about these things that are not in front of the testy Pharisees. And the conversation is much longer than perhaps what is in this text, but clearly Jesus says that anyone who divorces and remarries commits adultery. And as I said earlier, Matthew's account says, except for marital unfaithfulness. I don't have time to talk about it today, but if you wanted to look up David Instone Brewer, he has an, a treatment of this whole matter that explains that Jesus is not condemning divorce for any cause, for there were some causes for divorce, or at least reasons that allowed divorce. Rather, Jesus is condemning this newly invented, pharisaical, any cause for divorce approach that they were using for Deuteronomy 24.1 to do. And, and so um, Jesus is responding to their interpretation of that passage on divorce. And then finally, I want to mention uh, the self-interest 
versus the oneness in marriage and the children. I don't think it's coincidental in this passage at all that, that there's, a, there's a sandwiched section before the section on divorce and after the section on divorce. People are bringing children to Jesus and Jesus is saying, let them come, don't hinder them. And I wonder if, if even this occurred at the very moment of this argument on, on divorce. And so when Jesus says, don't let anything hinder them from coming to me, I wonder if he is not implicating that one of the things that hinders children so very much is when marriages fall apart. I have talked to many people who are adult children whose, whose parents separate and divorce while they're adults and they still go through such woundedness and hurt. And so as the worship team comes, and I'm sorry we're just a little bit longer this morning, I would like us to end with a song that will give you an opportunity to respond in your own life, in your own marriage. But I want to say that as they come that there are books available. There's dozens of books on marriage in our church library. There's uh, books that we have to recommend as pastors. There's DVD series and things like that that you could take home and look at as a couple. And uh, as I said, please, Kevin and Linnell, Pat and I are available. If you wanted to talk to a pastoral couple, we would be glad to talk through whatever it is. But don't try to just go it alone. Don't hemorrhage privately because there's so much at stake. May God bless us. Thank you.